You're listening to the City Lights Podcast. City Lights is a church located in Greenville, South Carolina, devoted to building family, blessing neighbors, and bringing good news to the nations. Thanks for joining us. All right, Mark chapter uh, 7, if you have your Bible there, that'd be fantastic. Uh, we are watching uh, the movements of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus, the miracles of Jesus. Uh, we're watching how he operates, and it turns out he is way less like a Kardashian, you know? Uh, he's a servant, you know? Celebrities are about, what does this do for me? How does this make me look good? How does this make me feel? And you just cannot be a celebrity and a servant at the same time. I, I can't love you uh, when I love myself more than you. There's always strings. There's always just something that I've got to have an agenda for. Your opinions matter too much to me. I'm scared of what you're going to do to me. Like, I can't love you and want you to want you to, 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 to celebritize me at the same time. The only way the servant can be a servant is that he lives his life or she lives her life underneath the banner of this is my son or daughter whom I have pleased. There's nothing you can do to take. There's nothing you can do to give. There's nothing you can do to change. Like I'm here uh, on, a, on a set light flint operation to serve you and love you and give my life as a ransom for many, not to, um, to take life from you, but to give my life, not to be served, but to serve. And we see the character of Jesus uh, all throughout the book of Mark, which is what the, the theme of Suffering Servant is. Um, have you ever been uh, to a mission trip before? Um, maybe one that required a, a passport. Maybe one that was just, you know, uh, to those poor people in Florida. Uh, I'm just kidding. Uh, uh, just all, all across the country, have you been to a week-long mission trip, a weekend mission trip, a, a month-long mission trip? Something about mission trips, they always, they always change you. You always leave kind of feeling like, I don't think I changed others as much as I felt like I was changed, you know, on a, on a mission trip. I've only been to a few. Some of you guys um, are my heroes when it comes to missions and, and all that you guys have given and, and sacrificed to do mission um, across, across seas. I was uh, at a Haitian mission trip one time for a week uh, with a guy named uh, Gary Hippolyte, and they've seen some crazy stuff in there. Everybody's, you know, uh, a, a cessationalist. Everybody doesn't believe in the Holy Spirit. Then they go on the mission field, and they're like, oh, the Holy Spirit still does crazy stuff. And uh, so there was people that have been, like, miraculously, like, moved out of the way of bullets in this. There's, uh, uh, you know, how many know it's like you can hide from the supernatural realm sometimes when you're in a commercial environment, but down there they're, like, boiling water. You know, there's, like, witchcraft and all this crazy stuff that goes on. And, and so we saw a lot of, like, you know, supernatural stuff and, and unexplainable, unscientific, not reproducible, not measurable things that go on in the spiritual realm in Haiti. And I'll never forget it. I'll never forget the... That when, when faced with, with not just natural problems, but face-to-face with spiritual um, temptation and, and, and spiritual oppression, how much prayer mattered in moments like that, how little programming mattered, and how much at 4 a.m. you're going to be on your face when you're in that environment to pray every single morning in Haiti. So never, never forget that. I remember going to Cabrini Green and just walking around and just seeing, you know, the drug needles uh, that were there and painting, you know, some of the, uh, this is the south side of Chicago, but uh, painting the the, uh, the playgrounds as, as a high school kid and just seeing um, a guy that was not a celebrity pastor giving his life away to a city that sometimes rejected him and is oftentimes hard-hearted in its reception of the kingdom of God. Uh, you just don't leave the mission field unchanged. Something about the mission field just changes you even more than church. And the takeaway is, is that there's just, I mean, to leave it to the Bible to be right about this. There's something that's life-changing about just spending uninterrupted time like a week with a team. Like, there's just amazing. You could be, you know, in a small group or even a church for years and years and years. You go overseas with somebody else, and you, uh, don't have, you can't hide your, your bad breath from them anymore, and you're playing Sudoku on the plane, and there's something bonding about being on mission together. Why is it that when, when people seek out community without mission, they sometimes struggle to find it? But when you go on a mission with other people, you end up finding the community everywhere you are because you have that common mission. The team is something that changes you. Abject poverty. Uh, seeing... Um, 
seeing uh, people that are, can be so rich, like con- convictingly rich, little kids in Guatemala. We went to this mission trip just the other last March um, that have none of the things that my soul pines after in many places, but are so much happier than me. There's something about that when you see, when you see that's unchangeable. And, and most convictingly probably is when you get out of the bubble and you realize there's tons of people that know how to do church that don't know how to do kingdom. <laughs> you, in, in fact, are taught and led and nurtured and natured to answer good Bible questions and get good theology and, and shake hands and say, how you doing, brother, and amen, like for one hour a week. And then you go on the mission field and you realize how thin that is, that church is a wonderful place, but the kingdom of God is way bigger than the churches. And one is, one is way more important <clears throat> when it comes to uh, what actually is, is, is um, eternal. And so here's a, here's a quote on the screen. Um, I can't take credit for it. I've heard it um, either from Chris Vallon or a couple of other teachers I've heard before. But anyways, um, all of the church, we find out, is in the kingdom. When you go on mission trips, there's a, um, a, a, a juxtaposition, an abstraction where you get to really see the kingdom of God outside of Sunday morning services in other cultures. And you realize that um, there's so much good Jesus stuff that goes on in Sunday morning encounters, but the breadth and the width and the extent of what Jesus is doing is way bigger than what goes on at 9 a.m. in any given place. And, and by the way, doesn't need the help of any church or any person. Like it wants the church, but doesn't need the church, doesn't need the help of the church to shine the light of the kingdom on all four corners of the earth because truth of the matter is the church doesn't really bring the kingdom. We're just joining where it already is. That the kingdom of God is way bigger than the box of the church and will work in our, in our programs or outside our programs or through our programs and so forth. And then finally, you also um, find out, so all the church is in the kingdom, but not all the kingdom is in the church. Then a lot of times when you come back to the United States and you see the church uh, that is sometimes ever so different than the kingdom of God, that there's so much that we add and subtract to the kingdom of God with just our human rules and regulations. So, so Jesus, uh, in this chapter, in chapter uh, uh, 7, where we're at there, that we'll close up uh, by the end of the day, is, um, is on a little mission trip. He goes to a place called Tyre and Sidon which is uh, modern-day Lebanon and a little bit of Syria. And so just as much conflagratory and, and uh, volatile political landscape that we would see on CNN right now, you could go over there at the same exact time between Jew and Gentile, just as much hostility, just as much enmity between the Jews and the Gentiles that existed. It was actually the place historically where Jezebel uh, kind of had um, some of her uh, counter-kingdom that was going on during the time of the kings. It's also a place where deep entrenchment of Baal uh, and idol worship was going on in Tyre and Sidon. This is a mission trip. This is not in Kansas. This is out there in the mission field um, where, where the kingdom of God is just raw and, um, and not contained. And, um, and so, you know, it's like, uh, it's like they, always, you know, they always say, or at least I always think about it, it's like foreigners are real, real, real nice when they're cute, you know, and, uh, and help us. But when they're mean and angry and scary, uh, it kind of changes the tone. So, so the experience of the disciples and what's unique about chapter 7 is that they are witnessing different from other parts of the, the, the experience of following Jesus and the ministry of Jesus, they're experiencing the kingdom, follow me on this one, the disciples are experiencing the kingdom at speed without the covenant. They're experiencing the kingdom of God moving wherever it wants, through whomever it wants to, just because of grace, just because of faith, without the prophets. The kingdom of God uses the prophets, doesn't need the prophets apparently because it's moving without, without the prophets. The disciples who are Jewish people are used to the kingdom of God always moving through the covenant, moving through the law. There's no law here. There's no Ten Commandments. There's no regulation. There's no Bible school. There's no seminary. Just the kingdom of God without without the covenant. Uh, Kingdom of God, according to the Jews, always lived in the temple. 
where there was priests and sacrifices and you had to wash the right way and observe the Levitical code. And then just if you got all the things right, then the presence would fall is the Jewish mindset. But this is the kingdom of God, raw and un, un, ungarnished and undomesticated and wild and moving out and spreading out with or through or without the covenant of God. The kingdom of God is moving whether or not the church of God is with them. And so um, uh, uh, it reminds me of this um, this, uh, this episode of Mr. Rogers I saw one time, uh, whereby they took uh, all the kids over on this little field trip, uh, and they got to see how crayons were made. Some of you guys might remember this. Some of you, this is great television. Uh, that Even on YouTube, as I watched it, was popular beyond even my own preference. Uh, and uh, there was something just so mesmerizing, like Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, when you just see all the yellow wax coming down into this big vat, you know? And then they roll up the crayons, and they put the paper around it. And then they, they, they have that little, remember they had the little box and the little crayon sharpener on the back and they sell it to you, you know, at a Walmart. And there's something powerful and mesmerizing about watching how something is made because when you see how something is made, you understand what it's made of. There's something about the raw, unfiltered, unproduced, uncommercialized, un, un, unhuman manufactured, undomesticated kingdom of God, the kingdom without the covenant, the kingdom without people branding it or making it or, or organizing it, just the kingdom of God in itself. When, when you go out to see the kingdom without the covenant, you just see what the kingdom is with a, just, just in everyday life, the actual raw materials of what the kingdom of God is made of. And so there's two stories I want to read. And I think the two stories illustrate really, I think the core essential ingredients of what it is that the kingdom is made of. The kingdom of God is not made of seminaries. It's very helpful. Seminaries are very, very helpful things. They help us understand sound doctrine. We should all learn and, and know, know about things that are taught. Kingdom of God is not small groups. Kingdom of God, small groups are, are rhythms of relationship that help us know to show up somewhere on Tuesday, but the kingdom of God can move without small groups. The kingdom of God is not preachers. Matter of fact, I joked about it last week, but if Jesus were to stand up and preach in a lot of sermons in churches, people would be like, are we paying this guy to talk for 10 minutes at a time? The, the kingdom of God moves with or without, Jesus, uh, without preachers, sometimes um, despite them. The kingdom of God, essentially, wherever it is, no matter where you are in your story and your walk with Jesus, is always essentially rooted down in two fundamental ingredients, and that is grace and faith. This is what um, the kingdom of God is. We're going to um, encounter the raw kingdom of God, encounter a Phoenician woman that is so desperate to have her daughter healed that all you can see out of her life is faith. And I think the scripture is telling us whether or not we're desperate to get our daughter delivered of a demon or desperate to get delivered of the demon of pornography or the demon of addiction or the demon of, of shame or lust or guilt or whatever, no matter what, this woman, the common ingredient for all of us here, we don't have to be a, a, Phoenician, a Seraphonician woman to have faith, but this faith, there's no kingdom without faith. And secondly, we see a blind man who does nothing except to get drug in front of Jesus by his friends, and he's healed of his deafness. And I think it illustrates what Jesus is doing through grace. And so these are the two fundamental ingredients is grace and faith is the kingdom of God. So let me read our passage, a kind of a rooted Ephesians passage just to get us going. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. This is not yourself. It is a gift of God, not by work so that nobody can boast. All right, so here it is. Uh, verse 24. Jesus left that place and went to the vicinity of Tyre. Tyre is the mean, ugly, scary, Gentile, giants in the land, David and Goliath type of a town. Every, everybody likes foreigners when they're cute and helpless. Nobody likes foreigners when they're mean and ugly, right? He entered a house, and he did not want anyone to know it. He was on a vacation. He was on a vacation, um, and he was actually surprised, even by the faith in the kingdom of God that existed without him even being in a place. He enters into the house, and the house is like today. It's not like me coming over to your house to play Xbox. The house is like going on vacation with somebody. 
You know, think about your least favorite politician. Would you go on vacation with them? Right? This isn't just that you're, you're, you're an enemy, you're not just a stranger, you're not just a friend. I'm, I'm actually endeavoring to build family with you as a mean, ugly, scary foreigner. In fact, as soon as uh, she heard about him, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an impure spirit came and fell at his feet. And you've never seen somebody, what do they say, a, 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 a woman, a mom could lift a car if their baby was under it? You've never seen anybody moved and moving heaven and earth. You've never seen faith uh, of the kingdom of God other than a woman trying to save her desperate, you know, demonized, frothing at the mouth, rolling on the ground, demonized daughter. That's faith, okay? So here it is. We have a picture of faith, and there's not two kinds of faith. The Bible says there's one baptism, one spirit, one Jesus, one Lord, and one faith. We don't share another category of faith or American faith or consumer faith or passive faith. We share this is our faith or no faith. This is faith. This is what the Bible took us on a mission trip to go figure out what real faith is, which is not necessarily just sitting in a pew. Faith is a desperate woman needing her daughter saved. That's what faith is. We can't change the dictionary. So so there's three things I want you to notice about faith. It's the desperation, it's the persistence, it's the humility. Watch this. Verse 26, the woman was a Greek She's born in a Syrian um, household. She's Phoenician. And she begs Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. That's the thing about, um, you know, guys, they, they struggle to commit. You know, they, um, they want to play Xbox. And uh, they just want to be buddies. They don't want to be married. That's too much responsibility. You know, and so they're run, running from stuff. And, and, and what they find out is when they don't commit, they actually, they actually ruin the very chance for love that they would have because, you guys know if you, if you don't commit to something, you won't taste the most important parts of love, which is serving somebody at a cost to yourself. And so the thing about this lady's circumstance that she's actually ironically more fortunate than some of us that have all of our health and all of our wealth and all of our comforts and conveniences is that she's pushed to a place of desperation. Many of us in a spiritual sense maybe live 20 or 30 or 40 years before we even get put to this place, but desperation is measured by two things, options and stakes. If you have high stakes and lots of options, you're not very desperate because you can pick any of the doors. Or if you have uh, lots of options, but it doesn't really matter because it's just whether or not I go to Burger King or Arby's, it doesn't matter. But when you have very little options and high stakes, it's, it's amazing what humans can do, what kind of cars people can pick up when they're put into places of desperation. And so maybe the scripture would be telling us, like, don't weigh out the options with Jesus. Sooner or later, we're going to put our feet on some type of a sinking sand over time, and be moved to this desperation. And for some of us, apparently, in scriptures, it's going to be too late. But faith is not weighing options. Faith is not saying, well, I guess if Jesus, you know, makes my heart happy and helps me go to sleep better, that's great. But if not, then I'll try, you know, all these other things and make yoga my salvation or meditation my salvation or some podcast. Like, faith is not options. Faith is, is narrowing all the options to say Jesus is the only option. That's what faith is. Secondly, faith is desperate. Uh, excuse me, faith is uh, persistent, verse 27. So faith is desperate. Number two, faith is persistent. Verse 27, first let the children eat all they want, he says. Now listen to this. We're such a hyper-offended, you know, culture these days. What happens? How quick does Jesus get get canceled when he says this? First let the children eat all they want, he says to this woman. And he gives her this parable. For it is not right to take the children's bread away from dogs. So I don't care what uh, community you're in, what kind of culture you're in, this is a hard pill to swallow for sure. Now, he changed the, uh, the, the connotation, the pejorative connotation of, of, of the dog. There's like scrap-eating uh, uh, junkyard dogs that uh, basically has a racial, racial epithet 
um, uh, Jews would call Gentile people. He doesn't use that word. He uses more of like the puppy word, the word of the little puppy that's walking around, you know, your little penny, like at my house, you know, walking around. Now, now however much you soften it and how much the body language feels like it has compassion, it's still not a human. It still feels like a dog, right? Now, the interpretation here of this only makes sense if you believe in the covenant promise of Jesus because the true interpretation of the parable is not saying that one person's a dog and one person's a child. It's saying that, that the Jewish people were never chosen to be better. They were chosen to be blessed. And most people, they think when they get an A or when they make a lot of money that it must mean that they're special and so they deserve something other than somebody else does. But the, the covenant of, of the Jews was never to be better. It was, I'm giving you something to bless other people. I'm making you a child to help other people become children of God, which they failed on their assignment. And so somehow she sees through this covenantal um, sequence, really, uh, and dispensation of who she is in the, in, the, in the pinpoint of human history, and she interprets the parable rightly. She does not interpret it as Jesus calling her a dog, but actually inviting her to be a child. And so here's the reality. I, th- I think, if anything, we could look at this verse and think about the testing of our faith and what is biblical faith. Like, not faith in terms of what we sing on Sundays, but faith that actually moves the kingdom of God and actually invites the kingdom of God. You've experienced it, and I think this scripture is telling us that we will not persevere in faith while at the same time living with an offended heart. You and I, as the just curriculum of life, are going to run into people and walls and barriers. You think about all the obstacles. Not only is this woman the wrong race, but she's the wrong gender. She shouldn't even be talking to Jesus. The disciples in the Matthew version of this text are telling the woman to go away. Think about all the obstacles that are thrown at this woman, and you can see the strength of the faith based on the perseverance against the measure of obstacles that are coming at it. And she has the entire world pushed against her, but yet her faith sees something in Jesus that will not quit, that will not quit. And so if we're looking at this faith, there's not two different types of faith. There's one kind of saving faith. And the only faith, right, that's going to see us through, that's going to persevere, is not allowing the criticism or the offense or the church hurt or the thing that that pastor said or the thing that that friend said or the way that that person didn't check on you. Like, like if that is going to be the limit of your faith, the place of your quitting, then we will not experience the same faith as this woman is, is facing. That, that Jesus is allowing for the possibility for offense to happen to show the perseverance of her faith to move through it. And there is not two types of faith. There is perseverant faith or no faith. That's the only brand of faith there is. There is faith that is willing to move past the fence if it means I'm with Jesus. I'm not going to allow the offense and the bitterness of others to stand in the way of my salvation. Lastly, it's, it's, uh, it's humble. Lord, she says, she's very clever. She's, she's humorous. And sometimes, you know, like Kristen says, you gotta laugh a little bit to get through this thing. She says, even the dogs under the table get to eat the children's crumbs. Just quick, just, just, uh, just humorous. And so... Um, there's, a, there's, a, there's just a way, I think. There's a way to approach. I remember that when kids would ask for a curve on the test, there was kids that you just would never give a curve to on a test just because of the way their attitude is. But there's a humility that I'm just going to ask you and assume the best of your heart. She just assumes past the racial stigmas and all of the barriers and the offenses and all the violence that went on between the people that I actually believe that Jesus' grace is better for me than the, than the hostile world around me. I'm choosing to believe that he owes me nothing, but he wants to give me everything. He's, she's humble. For such a reply, he says, uh, the demon has left your daughter. And from a distance, like it's not time yet to go rescue the Gentiles, but from proxy, even the centurion, remember the woman was not healed in, in person, but by proxy, through faith, through that woman's faith, her household was saved. And the child was lying on the bed with the demon gone. And so a quick illustration um, before I move on. But um, 
Biblical faith is not accurate, just accurate theology. There's plenty of people who search scriptures have accurate theology, but biblical faith is not just having good thoughts. Biblical faith is putting action to your trust. Biblical faith is active trust. And so when I get on this stool right here, nobody says, wow, look at the agility. What an incredible athlete. He just uh, maneuvered his way up on the, oh, look at how he put his feet up on there. That's incredible. And then the dismount. How about a round of applause for Pastor Oliver for sitting on this stool? Like nobody's impressed by trusting something that's trustworthy. Biblical faith is not Indiana Jones. It's just smart statistics. Like, have you looked at the world lately? Do you know anybody that saved themselves? Have you seen anybody that is richer? And even the deathbed quotes of Karl Marx and some of these world leaders of people that, you know, claim to have great transcendent ideologies and theologies like, the Apostle Paul, like, is saying, you know, like, Christ is, is gained. Even the late, great Dallas Willard, you know, the, the, the guy that wrote the Divine Conspiracy the, in the 80s, you know, his famous last words were, thank you. Nobody's impressed by faith. Faith is, faith is not the object of celebration. It's, it's, it's what object faith puts itself into. It's, it's not how amazing and extravagant the person is for the fasting and praying and reading and preaching that they do. It, it's, it's the grace that has come up under the person that has learned to trust what's trustworthy, to learn to trust the grace that lives in Jesus. And so, um, so this is the picture, I think, of what biblical faith. So, so we continue on a mission trip, and that's why I think these two stories need to get read together, because as you see how much is expected and how much comes up out of this woman when it comes to faith against opposition, I want you, I want you to watch how much the woman did in the last story and how little the deaf guy does in this story. The focus in the last story was about the woman and what the woman is doing in faith. But the focus of this story is about Jesus and how little the guy does because of Jesus' grace. So watch this in this second testimony, verse 31. Then Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre and went through Sidon, down to the Sea of Galilee and into the region of the Decapolis. Now it's a between-the-lines type of uh, narrative going on here, but the last time we were in the Decapolis was when the, the demon got delivered, or legion got delivered out of this guy who was running around the graveyards with the chains. And so one of the lessons here right off the page is the fact that actually the kingdom of God, believe it or not, spread around the region of Decapolis without Jesus. Even the kingdom of God advances faster and quicker than Jesus actually did more work in the Decapolis than he did in Jerusalem, got more done by not being there, if only to show that some of the times that the greatest work of the kingdom is just in our resting Sometimes God just does things for people that don't help themselves. Just to remind us all the time that everything that's happening is not because we did it or went on a mission trip. It's because God is good and continues to choose his people and love this world. And so in the Decapolis, they have a multiplication factor of the kingdom of God. And people know who Jesus is by the time he gets there. And they chase him down in verse 32. Some people were brought to him and a man was deaf, could hardly talk. And they begged Jesus to place his hand on him. So I just want everybody, we... We oftentimes struggle, you know, to empathize and understand, like, like, what it's really like. Like, if you can hear everything all the time, it's hard to really understand what the experience is of this deaf person because we've never been deaf before. And so, um, just real quickly, humor me here. I want everybody to um, do two things for me. I want you to plug your ears, no cheating, and as tightly as you can, and I want you to just hum your favorite Christmas song for 10 seconds, okay? I want you to plug your ears and hum your favorite Christmas song so you can't hear anything. And just, just think about this for a second. Are you humming? I don't want you to hear nothing. No cheating. You shouldn't hear anything from me. We're simulating deafness. 
If you can hear me, you're not doing it right. I want you to completely eliminate all sound to experience what does it mean to be deaf. Okay, great job. Round of applause. Wake everybody up. Get everybody out of that. Like, I, I was listening to somebody give a testimony, you know, of, 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 the, of what it likes. It's like when you go to Publix and the cashier says something to you and gets frustrated at you because you can't hear him say $49.99. There's something about being blind where if you could hear, you're, you're lost on the fixtures and the reality, but you feel like the listening allows you to still be connected with the activities that are going on in the room in a profound way. But something is so isolating about not being able to hear because everybody else is sort of moving along and they can't tell that you're deaf and so they're moving along without you. And so that's why I think kids and adults will cry when cochlear implants will go into their ears because there's so much connection and so much important things that go on when, when ears are opened. So verse 32, this is why all this matters and makes sense, says there were some people that brought the man that was deaf. He could hardly talk and he begged Jesus and they begged Jesus to put his hand on him. And verse 33 says, and after he took him aside... Away from the crowd, Jesus put his fingers into the man's ears, and then he spit and touched the man's tongue. Now, at a first glance, if you're not thinking about what it means to be a deaf person, this seems very bizarre and strange, and you're kind of like, I'm not even sure if I like this guy. I feel like I'm kind of weirded out by Jesus right now. What happens to you when you're in a crowd, and maybe you have been here before, you feel like you're surrounded by people, but all the more you feel so alone, and you can't hear anything that's going on. You don't know what's going on. And then somebody pulls you out of the crowd and says, hey, come over here. I want to talk to you for a second. What is the intimacy measure that happens when we're in a sea of people and, then, and, and, and you, on top of being in a sea of people, are put in a handicap so you can't really feel like you're a part in a secret? There's something so isolating and abandoning that feels like, 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 like uh, alone in that, in, in that moment when, the, when, when, the, when Jesus calls you out to have an experience, just you and him face to face. And then how is it that Jesus would communicate to you even who he is? Who is this guy? He's a complete stranger. You might have even heard his name before. Your friends drug you to church. They drug you out in front of this guy. He's talking. You don't even know what he's talking about. He might be selling Amway. Who knows what this guy's doing? He doesn't say a word. You know the first thing he does to you? Picture this. You can't hear anything. You've never heard anything. You've always been disconnected. And he takes his fingers and he puts them in your ear. He says, love will find a language. Love will find a way to communicate and convey the gospel in a language that you can understand. And all of a sudden, this deaf guy, without ever hearing the Sermon on the Mount, has two fingers in his ears, and he starts to understand sometimes more than people that actually can hear Jesus talk what the kingdom of God is like. And then he does something real weird. He just touches his tongue. It's like the ugly parts of our life. It's, this is not the way you treat an enemy. This is not the way you treat a stranger. That's how you treat a child. Like, I'm not cleaning up anybody's vomit, you know? Like, I... I I have four kids. Vomit is my line. I won't do it. You know what I mean? Like if I was working at Burger King and they said you need to clean up, I'm like, I'm, I'm quitting. That's the last day. Like I'm not going to do that. There's something that's so intimate and familiar about the Jesus that wouldn't touch an enemy's tongue like that, but to touch a family member, to say, you are my son. You are somebody that I love and cherish and somebody that I want to heal. And so these are three things that come to mind here as we just close up and reading up this passage. The grace is not just forgiveness. It's unmerited favor. And grace is intimate, and it's personal, and it's complete. Look at this, last, this very last passage as we'll, as we'll close up into the, the final question. He looked up at heaven, and with a deep sigh said to him, Ephatha, which means be opened. He knew the man was a lip reader, and he knew that he needed to communicate. Love will find a way to communicate. It will find a way, to get its way, a way to get its point across. And he communicates in this way that this man can finally understand. This is the point. Like, unless... 
unless Jesus touches our ears, every sermon is a Charlie Brown speech. None of it makes sense unless he touches our ears. If we don't have this story, then we think that the kingdom of God is about a woman or a man running out as far as they can, as hard as they can, preaching as much as they can to try and get the kingdom of God. How much faith did this guy need to get drugged to church and then get pulled over to get his ears touched by Jesus' fingers? None. It was grace before it was ever faith. And so he speaks to this guy. His ears are open. At this moment, the man's ears were open. His tongue was loose, and he began to speak plainly. People that can't hear obviously have speech impediments because they've never heard what it sounds like. Just like if we've never heard the gospel and understand it in our heart, we're always going to be speaking foolishness without the wisdom of the gospel supernaturally in our ears. Verse 36, Jesus commanded them not to tell anyone. Isn't that funny? Like, you've not been able to speak your whole life. Now I can speak, and I have the best story. Most people can't even, don't even have anything to say even if they can speak. Now this guy's got something important to say, and he can talk for the first time. And Jesus says, here's my first commandment for you, don't speak. That's super annoying. And the point is, is that he actually doesn't listen to Jesus, and I'm kind of with him. Like, if I'm here, I'm just like, just forget it. Like, just go talk, dude. Like, you want to talk, go talk. So the more he did so, the more they kept talking about it, and the people were overwhelmed and amazed. And he has done everything well, they said. That's Genesis. Remember when he says it's very good on the seventh day? It's complete. If it's not good, it's not over. The gospel, what he starts, he finishes. And what the people are recognizing, he, he, he doesn't quit. He continues to choose and choose and choose. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. So grace is intimate, grace is personal, and grace is complete. And so um, I'll close with this, but um, the doctrines of grace and faith have even split denominations and churches. Like, you know, you can be a uh, Reformed Baptist and you can be a Baptocostal, but you can't be a Reformed Pentecostal. It doesn't, doesn't work that way. You never have a Reformed Pentecostal. It's very few. Because it ultimately comes down to your understanding of who does what job. Whose job is this? Who saves people? Does God just, like, select some people to get saved because they're special and some people don't get saved? Or is it completely our job? Do we need to rally the gates of heaven and you didn't get healed or saved enough because you didn't pray enough or cry enough or do enough, right? And so somewhere in between must be some kind of an accurate portrayal of the gospel is, is that sovereignty is real, but so is individual choice. Grace is important, but so is faith. Jesus choosing us is important, but so is us choosing him back. And so... Um, I think about it this way. A lot of times people will say, you know, that phrase like favor ain't fair. They treat favor like, like it's luck. You know, favor ain't fair. I got a good parking spot. You know, that's what favor is, which is such an awful <laughs> rendition of uh, what the word favor means. But grace is unmerited favor. Grace means that God chooses us. And so think about it this way. We oftentimes compute grace to meaning just basically forgiveness. What happens if you have a grace period with a library book? It means you don't have to pay the debt for a little bit, right? That's what it means, or at least for a little while. If you have a grace period, right, with your, with your job, and you were late so many times, but you have a grace period, so now you get you know, forgiveness and you get that absolved in your record or whatever. Whatever grace means, it usually means forgiveness. But grace in the biblical sense, when Paul says grace, he says, God's grace is the thing that allowed me to suffer. Paul says that God's grace is the thing that allowed him to preach. What does grace mean? Paul says that God's grace is the thing that allowed him to be weak so he can know that he needed Jesus. Grace is, to Paul, way more than forgiveness. It's, it's favor, it's chosenness. So here's what I think we could really land on when it comes to what, what grace is, is that grace is not a couch. Grace is choosing. Grace is, um, is not a substitute teacher who's really cool, and you deserved an F, so he gives you a D minus. Grace is that mom who won't let you fail. Grace is that mom who continues to fight for you and chase you and bring you up and call you out. This is what grace is. It's, it's like 
the reason why I continue to give you grace and forgive you is not because I'm, you know, just a nice guy and I feel like making everything nonchalant around here and laissez-faire. It's because you're my child and I've chosen you and I treasure you and I favor you. Favor is not luck. It's a chosenness that God does for his people. And so I think that the answer to it between the grace and faith thing is, yes, that nobody is saved without being chosen. That God chose that man. That it wasn't for the friends, he wouldn't have been there. If it wasn't for Jesus, he wouldn't have gotten healed. The guy had no understanding of what to believe. He had nothing coming out of his ears and nothing coming out of his mouth. And before he could do anything for himself, Jesus put his fingers in his ears and chose that man just because he loved him. But at the same time, you could, you could be chosen. You could be in a marriage and never experiencing the real fruits and intimacy of marriage by never choosing Jesus back. And so salvation is not based on our choosing, right? But the kingdom of God and what we experience in day-to-day life, you can be chosen by Jesus without choosing him back. And I think that's really what the best way to, to illustrate and define uh, what grace and faith really looks like, that grace is God's choosing us, and faith is us choosing him in return. So I just want to put up this intentional question as we transition into, uh, into communion. But... Um, there is an invitation to all of us to not just be in church on Sunday, but to experience the kingdom of God. And whether it's mission trips or good things and bad things and hard times, that God is sparing no expense to invite us into the kingdom of God, which is always two things. It is saving faith and saving grace. Faith is desperate. Faith is persistent and faith is humble. It is not just good thoughts. It is, it is action, trust put into action. And grace, grace is, not, grace is not just a couch. It's just not a feel-good sermon. Grace is an intimate, personal, and complete choosing of your soul. That even if you don't choose him back, he continues to choose you. So that's the question. There is no two different times of grace and two different brands of faith. There's only one grace and one faith. Are you living in the kingdom of God? Do you have saving faith? And uh, do you know saving grace? Thanks again for joining us. If you have been encouraged or challenged by this message, please give us feedback by leaving a comment on this podcast. For more information on our church, visit us at www.citylights.cc.